In this, the penultimate episode with author James Lingren, whose book, Preserving Maritime America, A Cultural History of the Nation's Great Maritime Museums, has taken us to the Peabody Essex Museum, to the New Bedford Whaling Museum, to Mystic Seaport, to the Mariner's Museum, and now for this episode, we head across to the West Coast, where we talk about the San Francisco waterfront, on this episode of the NASO Video and Podcast. North American Society for Oceanic History was created by maritime scholars who met in 1971 at the University of Maine. They recognized that in North America there was no forum for maritime history or a society devoted to the study and promotion of maritime history. The aim of the original group of organizers was to create a diverse organization based initially on Canadian and American membership, which would gain the interest of others. Now there are members worldwide. And it is this diversity of membership that continues to make NASO a truly unique organization. 2020 marked the first year in recent memory that NASA was unable to meet, and therefore we bring historians, archaeologists, and students who are scheduled to present. Let's go to, uh, we're going to change coasts actually, we're going to head across the way over to San Francisco. And, and talk about the, uh, the San Francisco uh, uh, Maritime Museum and their waterfront, a very unique perspective that you have on, on, on this environment. Yeah, San Francisco. Uh, I chose San Francisco because the, the person you see on the right, Carl Cordham, he amazes me. He is such an enthusiast, such an advocate, such a stalwart for maritime history. Um, kind of single-minded at times. And um, in fact, his son told me that I didn't have the bona fides to write this book because I was not one who had normally gone to sea. You know, I kayak on Adirondack lakes, so that's as much water as I get, I suppose. But Carl, Carl Cordham had gone, had, had gone to sea when he was young. He had worked in the shipyards, at, uh, again, of the San Francisco Bay restoration shipyards. Uh, he, he was an enthusiast and I chose his museum uh, and decided not to do the museum at San Diego. And this is a, you know, writers make editorial judgments. And today the San Diego Maritime Museum is equally fascinating. It's got a gigantic collection of ships that revolve around uh, the, 18, the mid 19th century Star of India. Uh, San Diego would be a wonderful story, but it doesn't have a landside presence. It's all ships. San Francisco, on the other hand, has this beautiful art moderne, art deco building from the 1930s that has become the centerpiece. Now, Carl Cordham, as I, as I mentioned, uh, he went to see himself. So he was on again uh, a, a ship that rounded Cape Horn just as World War II, Pearl Harbor was, was again uh, breaking out. He had rounded Cape of Good Hope on the way to Australia. Uh, the ship that he was on, the Kailuni, would become one of his obsessions in his life. Carl Cordham uh, was 
one who found his soul at sea. Uh, during World War II, he was an officered civilian in the Army Transportation Corps. Uh, he made a little money, again, managing a gambling operation, illegal, obviously, but he put that money then uh, into uh, establishing his ability right after the war to get this concept of a museum going. In 1949, he was the speaker at a luncheon, a luncheon staged by Scott Newhall. This photograph that you show here is where Scott Newhall uh, at the time was with the San Francisco Chronicle. He edited at the time its, its Sunday magazine he would be. He would go on to become the main editor of the Chronicle and make that paper San Francisco's number one um, publication. Scott Newhall wanted to remake San Francisco's waterfront. Now, if you know from maritime history, San Francisco is a very contentious port for again labor relations, uh, labor unions. Uh, uh, labor unions, whether it's the longshoremen or again the seamen at sea, the, the, the laboring constituencies resorted to going on strike because San Francisco was one of the most exploitive ports in the world. The ship companies kind of ran amok when it came down to dealing fairly with their sailors. Scott Newhall realized that San Francisco had a bad reputation as a port. And so one thing that he uh, envisioned was establishing a maritime museum online with Carl Cordham's plans to build better public relations for San Francisco. So Carl Cordham came up in 1959 with the, with the idea of turning, again, a backward section of the port. Now, when you think of San Francisco, you, you, you know where the Golden Gate is, and that's where the bridge is. Uh, right nearby uh, is, again, the section, uh, former port section, that Carl Cordham envisioned. Uh, it had been pretty much a backwater since the 1906 fire, and um, uh, it destroyed much of the town. And so Carl Cordon wanted to develop his museum at what he would call Aquatic Park, and Newhall bought into this. Now, Carl Cordon was extremely imaginative. He was not simply interested in old sailing ships like Kailani or Balclutha, which he would eventually acquire. Uh, Carl Cordon was also fond of Victorian culture. And you think of San Francisco, one of the buildings that attracted him most was Ghirardelli's factory. And today we know it as Ghirardelli Chocolate Factory, it had been a textile factory, but it was endangered. You know, again, demolition was proposed in order to build kind of a modern apartment complex. Carl Cordham fought that. He arranged with a local shipping magnate to instead acquire the building and turn it into essentially what was America's first festival marketplace. So you can go to San Francisco today and you can see Ghirardelli Square, and it goes back to one of Carl Cordham's plans to help save the Victorian buildings of this, what's called the Aquatic Park District. 
And so Kyle Corden was, was fond of Victorian culture, red brick, kind of the romanticism there. He was a real Victorian. He felt much more comfortable in the late 19th century ambiance than he did in the world of what he called cathode ray tubes, television. He felt much more comfortable in kind of the neighborhoods of San Francisco rather than the suburbs of the sprawling San Francisco community. He felt much more comfortable in the past. So in some ways he was kind of an anti-modernist, but he was also one who was determined to save much of San Francisco. His wife, Jean, was equally determined. You know, she was at the forefront of some of the uh, movements at the time which fought the expansion of freeways. Freeways which were choking off the waterfront, freeways which were again polluting the air, freeways which were turning uh, San Francisco's into atomized citizens, kind of isolated and alone. And so the Courtnams themselves, a dynamic duel, you know, a wonderful cu couple to study, were so much. Uh, in the vanguard of how to see San Francisco in a different light. Carl Cardam's museum opened in 1951, and he realized that he needed a moneymaker to, again, finance his operation. The building was owned by the city, and the city restricted admissions to two days a week. Cardam just didn't have enough money. So in 1954-55, uh, he turned his eyes to one of the last square riggers on the Pacific coast. It's going to be eventually go back to its original name, Belclutha, again, uh, produced in Scotland. Uh, Belclutha would be restored in 55-56. It would be an operation in which he had tens of thousands of dollars of contributions in labor from the labor unions. And I tell the story how the labor unions kind of coerced some of their workers to join in this restoration deal. But the point was Balclutha became a symbol of a restored San Francisco. It made the front pages of national news magazines, Saturday Evening Post, for example. It made the front pages of the New York Times and the Baltimore and Seattle papers. Great publicity, uh, great publicity campaign um, engineered by Cordham and his sidekicks. Uh, Cordham realized, though, even with Balclutha, he still didn't have enough money coming in. So at the same time, he persuaded his friends in Sacramento to create a state park right next door to the museum at Aquatic Park. The, the San Francisco or California State Maritime Park is going to be one funded by Sacramento, and it's going to also acquire the ships that Cordham himself could not acquire. And so you've got a schooner like C.A. Thayer, uh, you've got a steam schooner like Wapama. Now, steam, steam schooner is kind of an anachronism. And, uh, you know, when you think of historians, they think of they say schooners should be sail vessels. But John Lyman, John Lyman came right into the research right here. So when you think about this Lyman Award, which I again came in second place for, John Lyman was, Lyman was one of the historians who was, was again at Cordham's side as again the state uh, maritime park was planned, was implemented, 
as his vessels were surveyed, as his vessels were studied. And the word steam schooner was an anachronism, but Wapama was a unique creation. There were only two of its type left in the nation. Uh, sadly, today, none are left. And that's another example that I should mention later about National Park Service failed. But to make the long story short, San Francisco Maritime Park, State Park, opened in 63, and it was a convincing tourist success. But it was not a financial success. Uh, it was a tourist success in that it was a very imaginative way of, of combining maritime culture, urban redevelopment, and again, an economic base through tourism. Jane Jacobs, who was again this great urban analyst of the 1950s and 1960s, The Life and Death of Great American Cities is her work. Jane Jacobs was wowed by what Carl Cordham had established in San Francisco. She praised it. And so when the park opened, it seemed so full of possibility, but at the same time in the 60s, California is beginning to retrench. California, the state of, is going through budget crisis. And so when you think of California, it's unable and unwilling to finance the park necessary for its growth. So ironic in the same 1960s, Carl Cordham's private San Francisco Maritime Museum and California's public state maritime park are both fin facing financial dilemma. Now California's case was compounded by the rise of a new governor, one named Ronald Wilson Reagan, who came on a platform of cutting costs. And um, his, one of his advisors named Mott, who would later become National Park Service Director, you know, worked to, uh, un to unload the state maritime park. So by the late 1960s, we can see both private maritime museum and public maritime park are in financial trouble. And so one of Gene Cordham's close confidants, benefactors, advisors, Congressman Phil Burton comes to the fore. Congressman Phil Burton was probably the second strongest congressman uh, in the United States. He chaired influential committees. He was one who would be recognized as expanding the National Park Service to the wonderful creation that we have today, doubling its size. Uh, in a quick span of years, uh, preserving so many of America's wonderful wildlands. Phil Burton helped create, again, legislation for, again, Golden Gate National Recreation Area. And one element of Golden Gate National Recreation Area would be, with the approval of the owners, would be the State Maritime Park, and so California handed over its park to the National Park Service. Another element would be the San Francisco Maritime Museum handing over its provisions to the National Park Service. And the city of San Francisco handing over its land, including what's called Victorian Park right there. Now, what that led to is the creation of the national park that we see today. Golden Gate National Recreation Area, Golden Gate National Recreation Park is uh, going to encompass 
vast collection of lands in the San Francisco and the Pacific area uh, of, of that part of California. Uh, Cal Cordham went along with it reluctantly. He only went along with the National Park Service because he thought it had the money to provide for the acquisition of more ships. Cal Cordham would travel the globe looking for more square riggers, often in ruinous condition, uh, in the backwaters of, of, of again, South America or Africa, wherever the case will be. And he wanted to, again, put those in, in the spotlight to restore them and to convince other maritime museums to adopt them. He, for example, uh, would be able to convince Hawaii, the Bishop Museum in Hawaii, to get its own square rigger, one that is in jeopardy today. He persuaded Southridge Seaport to get waiver treat, uh, which I'll talk about in the next chapter. Carl Corden was an advocate for acquiring more and more ships, and he thought the National Park Service could help him achieve that goal. Well, the story was in the 1980s different. As we know, in the 1980s, with the election of Ronald Reagan, the inauguration in January of 1981, he brought to the fore not only a cost-cutting regimen when it came down to public services, he brought with him a Department of Interior leadership that was hostile to the National Park Service, hostile to, again, the acquisition of these lands. And so through the 1980s, Cordon would fight an endless battle with the Park Service. Ironically, he was an employee of the Park Service. One of the aspects of the acquisition was that Carl Cordham would be hired as a curator for the San Francisco Maritime Museum for the National Park uh, Maritime Museum that was created. So Carl Cordham was a curator there, but he was constantly odds because his boss, the National Park Service, would not fund the ships that were necessary to make his dream come true, his dream of picturing um, the, the, the nation at sea. Uh, the West Coast fleet brought together in representative fashion, a steam schooner, a lumber schooner, a tall ship, et cetera, et cetera. And so Carl Corham would be at odds with um, the Park Service during the 1980s. It got to the point that the ships were endangered. Now, as I mentioned, some of these ships were in trouble to begin with. Wapama. Wapama was a steam schooner, and so it carried lumber when it was built back in the late 19th century. Its technology had waned by the 1920s. It was outmoded. Wapama was neglected by the Park Service to the point that it would later be scuttled. And so here we have a National Historic Landmark owned by the National Park Service, which is scuttled and the nation has lost it. Other ships were equally endangered. And so it all came down to money. Uh, as I mentioned, ships are extremely expensive to maintain. And when it came down to who would fund them, it was always a battle. And Carl Cordham, who died in the middle 1990s, was never able to solve that funding dilemma. One way the dilemma was, was remedied was partly the fact that the National Maritime Museum, as it was then called, 
was split off from the Golden Gate National Recreation Area. So in the late 90s, the separate standalone Maritime Museum was established. The San Francisco Maritime National Historical Park is what we have today. It's got its own budget line. It's got its own identity. It still has the problem of, of when it comes down to funding. So when I think about the San Francisco chapter, much of my focus was on Carl Cordham, but an equal uh, spotlight should be raised on the National Park Service because when it took over uh, in the early 80s, late 70s, early 80s, it was uh, just unfit to handle a maritime operation. You think of the National Park Service, well, you got Yosemite, you got Yellowstone, you got the grizzly bears, okay? It's mostly natural scenery, natural, natural precious sites. The Park Service did have Salem Historic Site going back to the middle 1930s, but it was really a low key operation. And so asking the Park Service to operate a maritime museum was asking like rangers who knew about grizzlies to take charge. They never had the professional expertise to do that. And so there'd be a constant battle between not only Cordon, but the craftsmen, the craftswomen who took care of these ships, trying to get the Park Service to recognize that, that maritime history, maritime uh, artifacts had, again, a special, special need that was not part of the National Park Service training. So in the, the 21st century, what we have is, again, this dilemma of how the Park Service is going to uh, really bring San Francisco Maritime National Historical Park up to its full potential. Uh, one of the battles that Cordham had was that he believed that, it, that he had a museum. It was called the National Maritime Museum. England had its National Maritime Museum. England had 20 curators America's National Maritime Museum had one. He used this example to kind of show that the United States had neglected funding and protecting its maritime heritage. And the fact that, that again, the Park Service focused on what's called visitor centers. In fact, if you go today to every uh, national park, you find a visitor center, which has limited display, limited curatorial operation, limited interpretation. Cordham objected to that too. So what we have today carrying off from the Cordham legacy is this battle over how can the Park Service adequately uh, display and interpret as well as protect future artifacts from America's West Coast military heritage from again uh, the San Francisco Bay Area. So when you think about the San Francisco chapter that I wrote, much has to do with Cordon, but an equal focus has to do with you know, how the Park Service can handle uh, what is um, this daunting operation that is very expensive in an era of declining appropriations and just um, limited possibilities. I think it's such an interesting chapter you wrote because it's such a mix between the private and the public sector and that public administration side of, of how to handle it. And again, it's the only West Coast one you look at, but it's a very unique one because the West Coast too is isolated in areas. I mean, down the San Francisco uh, area, and then you have LA and Long Beach and then Seattle area. So definitely it's a focus of, of uniqueness. And, and this chapter definitely shows that in the book. 
Yeah, I always show this to my students when I pull out a map. You think of the East Coast, every little port from Camden to Provincetown, every little port along the East Coast has got a harbor where you can safely shelter ships. The West Coast doesn't. And so San Francisco, Seattle, uh, San Diego, then thanks to the Corps of Engineers, you've got Portland and Long Beach coming in there. The West Coast is such a different uh, operation, such a different piece of geography than the East Coast. And so it shows how unique the West really is. Join us for our final discussion with author James Lindgren, whose book, Preserving Maritime America, A Cultural History of the Nation's Great Maritime Museums, will take us to our last destination, the South Street Seaport of New York City. So join us on the next episode of the NASO Video and Podcast.